The passage is in the bulletin. This is a familiar story when Jesus cleanses the temple. And I wonder how many of you here have been to an NFL football game before in person. Raise your hand. And maybe if you haven't been to an NFL football game, maybe you've been to a Major League Baseball game. Raise your hand. That's pretty much everybody. Uh, Maybe you've been to a presidential inauguration or a March for Life. I wonder if anybody's been to the Civil Rights March. Was anybody there for that? Nobody? Um, The idea is that big crowds, big crowds, and there's a big crowd that Jesus is is entering into at the Passover, people believe that there was about two million people that would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And I can remember when I was young, very young, 1976, and Washington, D.C. was the 200th year, you know, of the, and the fireworks. And my parents took me down, my dad worked at National Airport, and we got to go down to the airport and watch the fireworks. But then we had to go home afterwards, and the crowd of people, and I remember as a kid, it was the latest I'd ever stayed up in my life, got home about 1 a.m. Of course, I was asleep, and they woke me up, but I remember that. And some of you have been pressed into a crowd before. You know what a big crowd is like. Well, Jesus is coming into the temple, and the temple is filled with people, okay? There's a, a million people live in Montgomery County. So imagine all of Montgomery County times two are around the temple area the week of Passover. I mean, it's just hard to fathom that many people. So Jesus, we are told in Matthew 21, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes by your spirit, that we would know who Jesus is and we would know what's important to Jesus, that you would overturn the tables in our hearts and lives where we are consumed and taken up with other things in worship and that you would come make your abode in us, your temple in our hearts, and that you would rule and reign over us. Speak to us, we pray, to all of us, the children, the youth, the adults. We ask that you'd have your way among us and that we'd hear what the Spirit is saying to the church in Jesus' name. Amen. The physical temple in the Old Testament And in the ministry of Jesus is where man meets with God and God meets with man. It's where we do business with God, right? The religious leaders here in Jesus' day were doing business, all right, but it wasn't with God. It was with gold. 
It wasn't about their maker. It was about money. They used the temple and they used the people coming, the Gentiles, to get what they wanted, more money. The religious leaders who allowed this to happen, they didn't love God and they didn't love their neighbor. They didn't love the presence of God. They loved the presence that they were extorting and robbing from their neighbor. They didn't love Shekinah glory. They gloried in shekels. And the outer courts were meant and designed for the nations, the ethne is the Greek word, all the people groups of the world were meant to come and see. Come on in, have a part of this. Be a part of the worship. Come see the glory of God. And Israel and the people of God were to be a light to the nations. But Israel completely lost sight of her mission here. And instead of being a light and loving their neighbors and loving the nations, they're fleecing them. Extorting from them with exorbitant prices and fees, taking advantage of them as the dominant group is preying upon the subdominant group. And as a result, it was big money for the in crowd. So Jesus comes to town for a purpose. And his purpose as he comes to the temple is to clean house. And so children and adults, I want you to think about what does this tell us about Jesus? What Jesus did, why he did it, and what this means for us. There is a lot here and there's a lot to go home and think about. Let me first try and paint a picture for you with what he did. As I mentioned, there is a lot of people. This is like a presidential inauguration crowd. The city has swelled, the traffic is horrendous, and, and the, the Uber drivers and the Lyft drivers, they were, they were on a donkey, okay? They didn't, you know, the taxis were a little different back then, okay? There were a lot of smells, okay? And, uh, it was very uh, congested, smelly, busy, noisy. And here comes Jesus, and he is the buzz that everybody's talking about. I mean, what was trending was Jesus, okay? He was trending. And he's coming from the country, and he's been at 35 different locations, preaching, teaching, and healing around the countryside. And now he comes to the Passover feast, and he has an entourage with him. He has a crowd following him. And the crowd that's following him meets the crowd that's coming to see him. And these two crowds are coming together, and we call that the triumphal entry. And that's where the children, you remember, are waving the palm branches, and they're throwing their palm branches down, and they're, they're hailing Jesus as he comes into town. And so the whole city, we are told in Matthew 21, verse 10, was stirred. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting word. It's actually the word for earthquake, okay? It's the word for tremble, okay? It's not just a little stir. I mean, it was a massive shaking is going on. And the crowds are saying, who is this? Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Now, the Gentile courts of the temple area, they're, they're this big temple courts, okay? They're three football fields long and 250 yards wide. So basically they are as wide almost as an entire football field and three football fields long. And that's the outer courts 
where the, there's a beautiful gate that is a, and a wall that separates the Jews from the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were not allowed into the inner courts. And so Ken Hughes, a comment, pastor commentator, he says that basically the Gentile area, this temple area, instead of this worshiping area, it basically becomes somewhat of something like Wall Street and the New York Stock Exchange and a county fair. Okay, so you mix the two together and that's you have the outer courts. And so the family of the high priest named Annas, he was behind all of this. And he was behind all kinds of laws that seemingly were for the purity of the animals and seemingly for the purity of the coins. But it was really all for their impure hearts to make a fortune. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, Roman Jewish historian, and he was born in 37 AD, and he, he wrote that the high priest was the great procurer of money. He was a businessman, and Annas was good at what he was doing, okay? And I'll explain a little bit more. Here's how this whole thing worked. You'd bring your animal for sacrifice, but you'd have to get in the inspection line to have your animal inspected, and better yet, you're probably best to just leave it at home because it's most likely going to flunk inspection, kind of like your car when it goes through the inspection, when you move it from out of state to in state. They're going to find something if it's a few years old. They got you. Well, they got you here, okay? So usually your, your, your animal didn't pass. So most of the people just said, forget it. I'm not even bringing an animal. I'm going to buy an animal when I get there. Well, the problem with buying the animal when you get there is it's like going to a redskin game and you get a little thirsty or hungry. Well, that's, and you got to park. There's an extra hundred right there. And if you brought your kids to the game, you might as well just take out a loan before you go, right? And you're feeling like Danny, Danny boy has got something over you, Dan, you know, Daniel Snyder. Well, they were feeling like Annas had something over them because the exorbitant prices were astronomical. Ten times more than what they should be, okay? So $4 pair of doves, which was, was the cost for what would be about a nickel. But the hike exchange is, let's take advantage of these Gentiles. Let's get them. And, so, and it gets worse. The, the currency had to match, you had to use the special shekels. And the special shekels were the Tyrian coins that were only allowed in the temple. So you don't have the proper currency. We're sorry, Gentiles, you've come with these, this currency, but we need to change the coins over to the special shekels. But they never matched up appropriately. Kind of like Mr. Banks, if you remember the father of the bride when he just flipped out in the, in the grocery store because the buns didn't match the, the number of hot dogs. These numbers never matched either. So there was always a bump up in the currency rate, and so there was always a tax and it didn't match up, so there was just more hiking, okay? So all of this was feeding Annas's pocket, and all of the religious leaders were all feeding their pockets, okay? And so this whole thing was, was costly worship, all right? It was making money, and it was big money. And so this was not the first time the religious leaders of Israel had become corrupt. Now, if you know your Bibles, uh, the den of robbers is a exact quote from Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11. So what Jesus says when he says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you make it a den of robbers. He takes Isaiah 56, 7 
and Jeremiah 7.11, and he puts the two together. And he reminds the religious leaders of two passages that they knew well, that they were violating both halves of the scriptures. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, direct quote from Isaiah 56. Den of robbers, direct quote, Jeremiah 7.11. And so Jeremiah 7, <clears throat> is, if you remember the story of Jeremiah, the people are going to be sent into, into exile, and the temple is going to be taken over and plundered and destroyed because of the corruption of God's people. And he says to them, amend your ways, and I will let you dwell in this house. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were saying, it's the temple, it's the temple. It's too big to fail. It's the temple of the Lord. Like, when we're here, your grace abounds. And so we're in the temple. What can God do in the temple? And he goes on, well, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one for another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods or do your own harm, to do your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail, that you think you're safe just because you're in the temple. But I'm coming to church. I must be okay. I came to church. Doesn't that count for something? And he says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after the gods you have not known? And then you come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered? Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? In your eyes? That's what Jeremiah was saying in, in Jeremiah 7, and this is what Jesus is doing now as he's coming to town, same thing. And so God is going to raise up the Babylonians, are going to plunder and destroy the temple, take God's people into exile for 70 years as a judgment for their hypocritical worship. Here Jesus is cleansing the temple to rid the temple of hypocrisy. And we know it was to no avail, and later God brings judgment and sends the Romans who destroy this temple in 70 AD. So Jesus comes into town on Monday. He goes into the, into the temple, and the Mark account, the Gospel of Mark, we're told he basically staged the place. The Bible says in Mark 11, 11, that Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. When he looked around at everything, and it was already late, he went back to Bethany with the 12. That's Monday. Tuesday comes, and it's time to clean house. So on Tuesday, he comes overturning tables. Money and coins are clanking everywhere. He's kicking over the seats where people are doing all the selling and even blocked the doors and wouldn't let anybody use the temple as the side street anymore. You see, the temple had become a shortcut route through the city. So you wouldn't have to walk around the whole area. Hey, it's just a shortcut. Just cut on through the court of the Gentiles. It's a lot easier than to get around. And so Jesus comes showing authority, showing boldness, showing a zeal for God's house. And so John's gospel, interestingly, in the Gospel of John, describes the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so there's a lot of arguments as to whether, does, does the temple get cleansed twice or once? That's a good question. There's, there's good arguments on both sides, but I think that, I mean, and, it, and it's argued that John is making a theological point, 
and that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are giving you more the chronology or the order, the sequence of what actually happened. So it may have been one event, but in John's gospel, we're actually told at the, if he cleanses it twice, that the first time he came and cleansed it, he took a whip. And it's kind of like a scene out of Indiana Jones. And he's got this whip, and he's using the whip to get his business accomplished. And uh, makes a whip of cords, pours out the coin of the money changers, overturns the tables. And in the temple, you, you think about all kinds of um, the big shots, the hierarchy. You had high priest, chief priest, priest, assistants, scribes, officials, religious leaders, Pharisees, temple police. Jesus takes them all on. As the whole thing is governed in such a way that the Gentiles are being exploited in the Jewish synagogue, in the temple. And so Romans had given um, the temple police authority to execute on the spot if they took a Gentile, if a Gentile went into beyond the beautiful gate, if they went into the courts. And Jesus comes taking on all these people and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why do you think, children? Why did Jesus do this? Because the worship had become corrupt. There's nothing about God in this. There's nothing about real worship going on. The worship is the worship of money. And Jesus is fulfilling these passages of Scripture in the Bible. Passages like Isaiah 35, where we're told, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you, and then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then the lame man shall leap like a deer. Well, what does verse 14 tell us of Matthew 21? Who gets helped when Jesus cleanses the temple? What does your text say? What does your Bible say, guys? Who gets helped is the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the ones that could never get into all that chaos. The blind and the lame come to him and he heals them. He's fulfilling Isaiah 35. He's also fulfilling Malachi 3, which says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Malachi 3. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then it says that he will bring swift judgment when he comes. And what he's bringing judgment against, the last thing he says, is against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. And he's bringing judgment. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple and he will bring judgment against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. So why does Jesus do this? Because he loves all the people groups. He loves all nations. I have other people which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And there'll be one flock and one shepherd. And the religious establishment is up in arms over what Jesus has done. But even more, they're upset about what the, what the children are doing. The children are, are raising the problem. Did you notice that, kids? The children cause the biggest stir in this text. The children 
are the ones who identify who Jesus is. And they are screaming, literally, they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Hosanna to the son of David! They saw what happened, and they're screaming out, Hosanna to the son of David! Hosanna! They know he's the true and better David. They get it. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. Save us. Save us. And boy, does that get the, the establishments really angry now. And they go, to, they go to Jesus and they say, do you hear what these children are saying? Like, you've got to get these children to be quiet, Jesus. And what does Jesus, does Jesus commend the children or does he stop them? Does he receive this? He sure does. And he says to them, which is really interesting, we started our worship service with Psalm 8, Right? How does Psalm 8 begin and end? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It begins with that and ends with that. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how excellent is your name. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Begins and ends with that. It's a, Psalm 8 is a praise of who? Yahweh. And Jesus then corrects the Pharisees and says, have you never heard from Psalm 8 where it says, out of the mouths of children and nursing infants, you have prepared praise? Yeah, that's me. I'm Yahweh. I'm Adonai. I'm here. Jesus is claiming that he's Yahweh. God in the flesh. The, the big name, the big covenant name of God. Jesus is saying, that's me. And he's saying, quiet down, Pharisees. The children got it right. The children understand who I am, but you don't. And so it gets worse. Because how does, look back at the call to worship. Look back in your bulletin of the call to worship. What is next when he says that you've prepared praise or ordained strength from children and, and babes? What's the next part say? Boy, this was a shocker to the, to the, to the establishment to still the enemy and the avenger. I'm raising up the children, and they're going to shut up the enemy and the avenger. And Jesus quotes that to the religious establishment. What does that mean that they are? If Jesus is Yahweh in Psalm 8, and who are they? Since the children are the children, who is the religious establishment? They would be the enemy and the avenger whom the children are shutting up. Shut. Bam! Do you want to know why they wanted to kill Jesus? Boy, now we, we, they want to kill him for sure because Jesus has just claimed that the children are not talking about blasphemy. The children are not talking bull or baloney. What they're doing is beautiful. They're praising King Jesus. The children often get the message first. Now, what's interesting is that when God comes in bringing change to hearts, isn't it interesting that he often first deals with money? This was all about money. How did the Reformation begin? It's when Martin Luther saw that the establishment, the Catholic Church, was making big money to build these big cathedrals and they're selling indulgences, selling forgiveness to build these beautiful cathedrals. And so Tetzel was delivering that message, and Martin Luther was astonished 
and made a stand to bring reformation. When God's spirit begins to work in us, he starts to turn the tables over in our lives. And we'll get to that in a second. So what does this mean for us? Um, There's a lot here. Um, Think about this. Who does Jesus show mercy to in this passage? We know that he brings judgment against the religious establishment. But look at verse 14 again. 14 is just an amazing verse. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. What's so amazing about that verse? The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. They're not allowed in the temple. That's the first thing. Does Jesus say, hey, you're not allowed in here. Get out. No, he knows that they're not allowed to be there. And they couldn't get in there anyway because of all the clutter and the clanking and the noising and, the, and all the animals and all the establishment. He's got to turn everything over. And I wonder what provoked them to go in to see Jesus. I mean, they see everybody running out. <laughs> and then they go in. I mean, he's kicking everybody out. And the blind and the lame come into the temple. And Jesus knows that they're not allowed in unless you're pure. And so what does Jesus do? He fixes the problem. You see, when he cleanses the temple, he cares about the people that everybody else had written off. Did the Jews care about the the blind and the lame? No. They were just a, they were a, they were a pimple on the, on, on the face of progress. They were just something to get out of the way. And yet Jesus cares about them. And so when he sees them come into the temple, instead of kicking them out, he heals them. So now they do belong there. They do belong there. The temple is for them. So what does a passage like this say to us? You may come here this morning. You may feel like, that's me. I don't belong here. I'm a misfit. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's for misfits or people that don't fit. And if we come in as the religious establishment, shame on us if we're concerned about money and concerned about power and we miss those that, are, that need help. And the other big thing here that's important for us to understand is Jesus says, To the Jewish establishment, he challenges his own people group. And Mark Mark is more a gospel for all the nations. Matthew's account's more for Jews. But the exact quote from Isaiah 56, 7 is, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And notice Jesus is claiming it's my house. I can rearrange the furniture if I want to. It's my house. But it's for all peoples. And so he challenges the dominant culture. And the dominant culture that's making it unbelievably difficult for any other culture to worship. And they're taking advantage of the other cultures. And so for us, we have to ask, are there, is it hard for anybody to come and worship here? And we just have to remember, what is our history? What is our history? Our history is slavery 
in America. It's our great sin in the past. It's if you asked other countries and they looked at America, they get that, but we don't get it. And so when we look at a text like this, we often miss the dominant, subdominant theme that's so prevalent in this passage. I remember doing a Bible study over at the Emory Grove Church that goes all the way back to the Civil War, and that church exists because Washington Grove, which was built by white people, they had the black people build their camp, and they wouldn't let the black people worship with them. So that's how you have Emory Grove, and you have that church. They go all the way back to the Civil War. Well, you sit in a Bible study with them, we're studying Joseph, and you're studying being oppressed and how to forgive, and they look at things a little differently. They see the subdominant themes a lot more than we do. There's things that we just will jump over because we don't necessarily see this, but Jesus takes on his own people group and says, you gotta be embracing of everybody. And so for us, it just means being intentional. It means being intentional, it means opening your home, recognizing it's difficult for people of other color, skin color than us, often to be here because the church started in America with blacks and whites in two different places, and that was intentional. And, and the two biggest, if you ask the sociologists, where are the two biggest areas in our culture today where segregation still exists, what would they tell you? They would tell you the college campus with the Greek system of sororities and fraternities is very segregated. And they'd say the second area is the church. And those are areas where the walls have to come down. And it just takes intentionality by the people of God embracing so that when Jesus says, my house shall be a house for all people, yes, we want it to be for all people. So we have to love one another. We get that, don't we, kids? And lastly, let me say this. There's a lot of people out there, kids, that take advantage of people that come to church. And so there's people on TV, names like Benny Hinn, names like Joel Osteen, and they think they have a different message. And their message is, is that God just exists to make you happy, and he exists to make you rich. And you, th and you just need to give us some more money, and we'll help you meet that. And there's a message that is a health and wealth gospel. And that's a false message. And Jesus is coming against the leaders that are out to get rich. That's not what we're to be about as the church. If God blesses us, and one of the things I love about our church is there are many people that make good money in the church, but they, they love sharing it. And I love to see when people do that, that it's not all about them. God's not against having money or resources, but we have the privilege here this morning. I mean, Susan brought a big need. 95 kids need backpacks. And we're hoping another church will partner with us. But I said, give the big ask, Susan. 95 backpacks. How many did we do last time? 30. This is three times as many backpacks. These are refugee kids, and they come with, they don't even have a jacket when they come over here. They need our help. And we can say his house is for all people. And let's love them as the people of God. You want to do that, kids? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We thank you that Jesus came all the way down, cleansed out the temple, 
<clears throat> and we ask that you cleanse the temple of our hearts. Forgive us for all the clutter in our hearts and the halls and highways that are so busy making money that we don't love God and love our neighbor well at all, just like these people, because we're too busy. Thank you for this day of rest. Thank you for this great truth. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would cleanse our hearts, that you'd make us more like Jesus. Help us to love the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the people that are different than us, that don't look like us. Help us to see where we put up walls and barriers. And may we break all those walls down just like Jesus so that everybody can have a place at the table. Amen. Amen.